business success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Join RVK for the award-winning RV on Business Show every Tuesday at 12 midday. It's not about thinking out of the box. There is no box. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's 11 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us. And yes, we are back at that stage that happens on a regular basis where the interest rate is under review. Many of us have really, really enjoyed the very low interest rate cycle that we've been through for a protracted period of time. Um, in fact, the last interest rate increase that came around was almost, you know, unfelt in many, many quarters because it was so small. And those of you who are paying debt really didn't feel it that much. And those who have fixed interest almost didn't feel it at all because fixed interest product really even took a bit of a hammering over the last short while. But we are in the cycle of the upgrade, of the uptick in interest rates. And that's just the way it works. It's cyclical. And we know that the NPC, the Money um, Monetary Policy Committee, is going to meet. And they're going to make a decision whether to increase rates or not to increase rates. But on the line with me is Carmen Nell, who is an economist and a strategist at Matrix. Carmen, welcome back to Chai FM. Thanks, Avi. Thanks for having me back. Great pleasure. You obviously did a good job last time. That's how we called you. <laughs> good. Carmen, we were discussing off air and I was saying to you that I, I don't think I can remember in the last many years so many factors coming together when we look at interest rate cycles. It's usually quite a, you know, a complex calculation and decision, but the, the, the usual suspects come to the party, inflation, the, the exchange rate, what's happening, labor, unemployment. But now we've got corona, and not only corona, but we've had, you know, two different strains in the last, I don't know, three months that have really come through and are making an impact. How do you read it? Yes, I think you rightly emphasize that there are so many factors or it's a confluence of sort of sometimes benign factors. In other words, the economy has reopened, so you highlight the new strains. Omicron wasn't quite as severe in terms of hospitalizations and deaths as feared, and therefore right. we actually kept opening up. We didn't go to more severe restrictions, what, which is something we were all scared of, whereas globally they actually did put in place restrictions. So the, the, the central bank is facing a lot of trade-offs, um, and so it's, it's quite so that we actually entitled our press release, you know, it's a fine balance, so striking the right balance, and it's a balancing act on the part of the Reserve Bank in terms of how fast and how far they actually need to be raising interest rates. The bottom line is that we are in the uptick cycle. We are in the increase cycle where we are hiking rates. How, just remind us, how large was the last um, hike that we had not so long ago? It was only 0.25%, so that was in November last year, and they hiked the interest rates from three, or the repo rate from 35 to 3.75%. So the prime rate, which is what we, we're more familiar with as Correct. borrowers, and that was increased then from 7 to 7.25%. So it is, it's still relatively low and it was a very small increase. So you wouldn't obviously have felt it in your sort of pocket for, for an average mortgage loan. Talk us through what's happened through since the last in, um, in, um, so interest rate hike. 
you know, the, the economy has sort of found some traction both here and overseas. The rebound has been greater than people expected. What's, what's really the picture been from November till now? I think the, the, so you rightly say we, we expect that when the data gets released for the fourth quarter that it would show, a, you know, a reasonable rebound, uh, compared to the third quarter. Remember when we had the social unrest and the economy shrank. Uh, but what we've had since then is inflation's hit 5.9%. So we know the target range is 3 to 6%, but effectively under this monetary policy committee, they're targeting 4.5%. So 59 is relatively high compared to 45 I think the other big aspect, and again, it's odd to say, you know, we're an economy, but our central bank sets interest rate because of global dynamics, but our central bank is very much aware about all of what the Federal Reserve in the United States is going to do, and they turned a lot more hawkish in December. So they they lifted their dots quite sharply, so they've got this dot plot where everyone on the committee and contributors to the Federal Reserve's decision-making, they have their forecasts, so they have a sharper or faster increase, and then also they accelerated what they call uh, the pace of their taper. So they're slowing down their bond buying program quite rapidly, and that will end um, in March, basically, which is a lot sooner than people were expecting six to 12 months ago. So I think that hawkish shift on the part of the Fed has actually been a, a big shift since the MPC met in November. Does this all sort of lean towards the feeling and maybe the signs that corona is going to be something that's just going to be factored into daily life going forward. And it'll, you know, for example, wearing masks will just be a thing of the norm across the world for the foreseeable future. But the economies will open up as they were prior to the, um, the pandemic hitting two years ago. So, so we at Matrix certainly think that this year we're going to transition sort of back to a form of normal. So again, this idea that the pandemic, so COVID becomes moves from a pandemic to becoming endemic. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not a medical specialist and one should always caution uh, against the risk that there could be another severe strain or variant coming through. But what we saw again with Omicron um, is that we were able to manage it. And I think certainly domestically that is the feeling you get just from speaking to people is that, you know, they're willing to go back to normal. I mean, I can tell you traffic in Cape Town certainly is back to normal. <laughs> so a lot of people are working from the office. I think we, we are learning to live with COVID. Uh, and even the government probably sometime this year, so maybe not in the next month or two, but, you know, we can start thinking down the line, uh, removing the state of disaster and actually getting getting almost back fully to the way things uh, things were before COVID. Globally, I think it's tougher. So, for example, China continues to have this zero COVID policy, so they have very strict lockdowns, uh, which hampers part of our sort of economy because it's spillovers. But I think locally, we're learning to live with it. Common, we need to go to to a break shortly, but maybe just to start the point, and we'll finish it off after the break. Is that ultimately China is a very important player, but the most active economy. Um, in many senses, is the American economy. And we often look to it as to see what the U.S. is doing and what's happening there. COVID hit the American economy really, really hard. And yet their market continued to do well during that period. But the two seem to be merging together now where the stimulus that the American government piled into the country, so literally 
paying people because they couldn't work and, and putting a lot of stimulus into the economy is now starting to match with the actual real economy because everything's opening up and everything's sort of coming, starting to work again. Do, does that really mean that we're going to see a very buoyant and, and upbeat American economy going forward? That's a key question. I think certainly we, uh, people often say sort of the economy um, and markets are not exactly the same thing. So I think a lot of the stimulus that was thrown at the economy certainly did help to get the economy going again. But what it also did was create a lot of sort of, let's say, excess income or excess savings that was put to work in financial markets. So there might be not divergence, as you said, that it's more convergence, but arguably the market pricing of the economy was actually way more rosy, optimistic than the actual underlying growth. Uh, and then also you've got sort of these supply-demand mismatches as well in the labor market that's complicating things and making the economy look a lot more buoyant than it is. I think the big concern would be that the Federal Reserve uh, is overly hawkish, hikes too aggressively or too rapidly, and that then dents financial markets with a negative spillover to the economy via the wealth effect and sentiment. Uh, but the U.S. economy is doing well. I mean, it rebounded exceptionally strongly. Already in 2020, it started rebounding. And a lot of what that was thanks to the significant degree of not just monetary policy stimulus, but more the, the coordination between monetary policy and fiscal policy, which was not the same thing we had in the global financial crisis, where it was solely monetary policy had to do all the heavy lifting there. Fiscal was seen to be constrained. Uh, whereas this time round, as you rightly point out, they threw everything at, at the problem. Carmen, thank you. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, what I really want to discuss is how the one interest rate affects the other, the American interest rate, what they do inside there, how we make a decision based on that going forward. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with you in a moment. This is RV on Business. And coming back to things that we care about, we care about the interest rates right now. And on the line with me is Carmen Nell, economist and macro strategist at Matrix Fund Managers. Carmen, the bottom line is that almost as soon as the um, Americans have made a decision on what they're going to do with infl- interest rates, the rest of the world sort of jostles for position, gets in line and decides how they're going to move. Are we a real direct chain result of what happens in America? Or do we take it into consideration when the MPC makes a decision? Uh, we're certainly not a direct chain result. So we, for example, don't peg our exchange rate, which would force us to, uh, you know, keep in lockstep with the Federal Reserve. Uh, we do have a floating exchange rate. So we do have uh, monetary policy in the independence to a large degree. But the, the Reserve Bank certainly takes into consideration what the Federal Reserve is going to do, because if you think about it, global monetary conditions are basically set in the U.S. So it's about what the U.S. Uh, sort of base interest rate is and where the U.S. Treasuries, for example, longer-term bond yields are. Uh, so I think that's part of the reason the Reserve Bank's turned slightly more hawkish is some concern um, about what a higher U.S. rates will mean. So, again, if we think about capital flows, you get push factors and pull factors. So often what we'd have near zero rates in the developed world would push capital out of developed markets into emerging markets. Then we benefit. But if that push factor is going to shift, we need to be aware of it 
uh, given the risk that it potentially holds for the exchange rate, and we know that a weak exchange rate often leads to higher inflation. Yeah, the interest rate is essential as to where the money is going to flow so that it can earn you know, interest while it's there. But one thing you talk about in the press release is this term normalization, and that whereas the world is looking to return to a state of normalization, in South Africa, that normalization, as usual, has its own peculiar flavor because we have different aspects and different in, um, different aspects that come to play. First of all, just take us through the concept of what is considered a normalization cycle around the world and how are we as South Africa, you know, dancing to our own tune in one way or another? Yes, yeah, so, so basically when, when market commentators or participants refer to normalization, um, it is sort of the process is to get away from an excessive policy stance, in this case, excessively loose, particularly uh, in the likes of the US, Europe, uh, and then to actually steadily move towards what sort of the jargon would be the equilibrium interest rate. Now, that's very difficult to estimate. You know, you can say estimated using averages over various periods or fancy econometric models, but it is to sort of get to a level where things will be in steady state. So, for example, now the Fed is quite concerned about excessive monetary stimulus and financial stability. So there are imbalances uh, that they want to correct, and that's, that whole sort of process is part of normalization. Uh, in East, in South Africa, we also have extremely low policy rates. So it's, as you highlighted at the beginning, you know, three and a half was very low. It's not something that we, in the long run history, were accustomed to. Certainly over the last two years, it's helped a lot. Uh, but there may be some concern that, Again, if we don't have an interest rate differential providing a reasonable buffer for the exchange rate, we need to move to normal. Now, normal for different people would mean different things. For the Reserve Bank, normal is probably somewhere between, say, 65 and 7%. That's on the repo rate. So you add 3.5% to that to get your prime rate. Our view on normal is it might be slightly lower, say, 55 to 6 But at the same time, we need to be concerned about our growth rate returning to normal. Now, last year, we had about 5% growth, which over the last 10, 12 years, that's extremely robust, right? Our normal for growth is around one and a half. So while we want to get interest rates back to normal, higher rates, our growth is going to normalize to a lower level. And sort of that's part of the trade of the Reserve Bank faces is, you know, you don't want your growth uh, shift, you know, downshift to be extreme so that we undershoot, you know, on the growth side. Um, by tightening monetary policy too much. Um, is it a real trade-off, or can the two sort of happen independently, especially in light of the fact that South Africa's 5% growth rate over the last year was simply because it was coming off such a low base that anything seemed substantial or anything was something? Can we not keep that trend going that, yes, we're coming off such a low base, base remembering that before COVID, South Africa, this African economy was already in the ICU. I mean, it really wasn't mm-hmm. doing well. So the higher rates, will that not sort of not um, upset a growth simply because we're coming on such a low mark? Certainly last year we had, well, it was a low base, but we definitely had the benefit of a commodity price boom for various reasons, whether it was U.S. stimulus, select shortages in some commodities, and that also helped the growth rate pick up significantly last year. So at the beginning of the year, people were expecting three and a half to four percent, but by the end of the year, the forecast had shifted to five percent. 
inflation and growth are not entirely independent. Certainly there are certain prices we know, for example, electricity tariffs that don't take growth into consideration at all, or some municipal tariffs and fees. But growth and inflation will always be linked. So I think uh, the Reserve Bank in that sense would be a bit more cautious to hike aggressively because they know growth is going to moderate. And moderating growth usually would be disinflationary. Uh, so it's very difficult to disentangle the two. Okay, fair enough. Just a few questions coming through. Robert wants to know, when we talk about aggressive interest rate hike in the USA, what percentage rate hike are we talking about? So when we say, so aggressive can mean rapid sequential hikes or ultimately getting to a very high level. I think in this sense, currently, the market, financial markets are already pricing at at least four 25 basis point hikes for this year. So that would be seen as quite aggressive given the, the dovish bias that the Fed has had over the last 15 years or so. Uh, ultimately, I think we can talk about aggressive would be if they go from zero to basically, say, two and a half. That would be quite a significant hiking cycle in the context of the, the, the debt overhang and the leverage in the U.S. economy. So, and they'd say two and a half might then be over, say, two, two years or so. So two and a half percent. So basically, one interest percent per year, all slightly after going forward. Yes. How would that relate to us? Because we're already sitting, you know, not at zero, we're sitting at three and a half or 3.75. You know, our increments won't be a quarter per cycle. What, what are ours expected to be? So given the low base um, and also lower, let's say, inflation volatility, we've also shifted to actually changing increments of 25 basis points. Uh, so unless the RAND weakens quite sharply, uh, it's unlikely that they need to uh, need to hike by larger increments, okay? Um, and again, it doesn't mean, because we already have one positive nominal rate, and our real rates are not as negative as in the U.S. So a real rate would be your nominal policy rate, uh, less the inflation rate. Uh, it's not as negative in the U.S. So we actually have a bit of a buffer. So it's, it will probably be a bit of a cumulative effect as, as once the Fed starts hiking rates, we might start to feel a bit more pressure say, on the exchange rate, and then the SARB needs to follow through. Uh, so we don't think necessarily it's going to be one-to-one, as we do have a bit of a buffer. But ultimately, we are a small open economy, not just in goods and services terms, the you know, in the GDP terms, but also in, in financial market terms. You know, foreigners are quite active in our bond markets yes. and in our equity market. So ultimately, our returns are, you know, robust compared to what you can get elsewhere. Um, but it's also a very fluid market. Am I correct? Yes, yes. Because it, it's a very... It's quite sophisticated. You know, we classified as an emerging market, but I would certainly say we have, you know, sort of the developed market financial sector, and that includes the financial market. So, they, they, you know, there are market makers who make active prices, and foreigners can trade, and our markets are relatively liquid. And that's what brings about some of the volatility um, and the ability of foreigners to buy and sell quite easily. Common, maybe let's answer some of the, the SMSs that are coming through. And I see there's a constant concern that comes through. Um, Nancy says, um, yes, interest rates went down. I paid less on my car and I paid less on my bond. However, if I look back, I don't have more cash to spend 
simply because everything else has gone up at the same time. So therefore, any increase in my car and my bond repayments will just make me poorer and poorer on an ongoing basis. Let, let's, let's take the emotion out of it and look at the facts. Is Nancy correct? Has, have the other expenses in the basket of the goods that a South African has to buy on a monthly basis, has the cost of living gone up over the last two years? Yes, so definitely the first thing we know based on, you know, all the memes that flew around in December when petrol hit over 20 rand a litre is that the, the rapid recovery in the oil price and the way that oil, uh, petrol price is determined locally using import parity pricing is that your transport costs have gone, gone up significantly. Um, so, so that's a big factor and that would take a chunk out of your income, post-tax income. The other thing that's also risen is food inflation, not as sharply as prior years when we had droughts, but your food inflation rose by around 6% last year, okay? And that is quite high if you think about the average wage earner in South Africa had sort of a, a wage increase last year of, let's say, 35 to 4%, right? So your, 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 your salary increase did not keep pace with your basic goods such as transport and then food which meant that at the end of the month, you actually had less income available for the other items that you needed to spend. Now, things like electricity, those usually have quite robust increases, so that takes away a, a bit more of the income. And although we were surprised, for example, about a relatively low medical aid premium increases, they still rose. You know, they still increased. Nothing, nothing, you know, except maybe in a few specific items, but nothing no price fell outright last year, okay? Everything increased, some by a bit more in terms of percentage points, some by, by less. And that is a constraint, is that if you've got some things rising a lot, it takes away the income available for other things. Um, and then what should then happen is that demand for the more discretionary things, um, whether it's going out, buying new clothes, things like that, that should then fall which then should ensure that those items inflation rates stay low. And then in that way, you try and maintain some level of affordability. You know, there's just so much coming through here. So another person comments, yes, um, obviously you, you, you hit a nerve on the medical aid. There was a very low increase. But when you're paying over 10,000 Rand a month for just two of you on medical aid, even a 5% increase is substantial. It's 6,000 rand extra per year. And I suppose when you look at it, that, it's, that's, it's quite a lot of money. Um, so I suppose that does come into the mix. The other comment that came through, which is very, very interesting, is that even though there, we have seen a rebound in tourism in South Africa, we still do not have the inflows of tourists that we expected prior to COVID. Many people still do not have their full-time jobs back. And compounded by the higher cost of living, those of us who relied on tips and tourism for a comfortable living have really, really suffered. I suppose that's another section of the economy that's a whole discussion on its own. Yes, yeah, so that is, so earlier we spoke about this idea that we're going to learn to live with COVID and that potentially down the line is a big upside for South Africa's GDP and sort of the spillover is tourism. So Tourism has, I wouldn't say recovered in terms of domestic tourism, but certainly we, you know, the government 
um, and private sector, they've tried to entice locals, you know, to, to travel more in South Africa. But we don't have, you know, we spend rands. It's not the dollars and the, the pounds that come in that we really need. And because of these serial variants coming through, you know, we, we haven't had the foreign tourism that we hope we get. Um, and for example, the UK and lots, but many European countries just put us on the red list when Omicron news broke. And then there's, you know, people canceled their travel plans for December and then they took us off. But by then it was too late. You know, people could not then reinstate plans. You know, uh, uh, flights were canceled. Um, so that these knee-jerk reactions have longer-term consequences. So I think that is something we'll probably have to wait for a bit longer because we may be open. But the UK isn't fully open, US isn't fully open, much of Europe, and that really is the tourist, call it tourist dollar or tourist pound that ideally we need to give our tourism sector, you know, the, the, the lifeline uh, to be able to recover. But that potentially is a big upside for our GDP growth down the line. Oh, just to, before we go to the break, just a, what a harsh message that's just come through. Um, Tabiso is saying, I am so sick and tired of people complaining about interest rate hikes. You knew they were going to go up when they went down. Why did you not ask your bank to peg your repayments so that you continue to pay what you were paying before or pay in extra yourself? So when the interest rates rise, you could accommodate it. And maybe Carmen, if I could answer it simply because human nature. The moment we have a little bit of a, of, of a breathing space, especially financial, when we're under such pressure, we're going to take it. And it's only those who have the luxury to be able to budget with surplus can make those decisions. Do you agree with me? Yes, it is a tough one. Um, look, you know, we, I think it's definitely correct to say interest rates move in cycles. Uh, but I agree with you. It, to Maybe when you budget, you have to sort of, uh, use a more conservative interest rate assumption to force yourself to save. But as you say, if you don't, you know, if everything's gone up, you, maybe your, your wage, your salary hasn't fully recovered, or you're still only working part-time following the lockdowns, it becomes very difficult. And I think another point is, yes, we are able to fix our interest rates, but only for certain terms, if, for example, you've got a home loan. Um, right. And then always actually, I think if you run the numbers because a bank that's going to fix the interest rate, you're not going to be able to fix it, say, at prime. You got, they, they're going to fix it at a spread over prime, and they make Correct. sure that they still make money on that, even if interest rates go up. And I think, on average, if you do the long-run calculations, you would probably be better off sticking to the floating exchange rate. 100%. So yes, it comes down to disciplined budgeting, ultimately. There you go. Colin, let's take a quick break. We'll come back to you in a moment. This is RV on Business. Welcome back to 101.9. Hi, 101.9. Hi, Sorry about that. It is 19 minutes to one. Carmen, let's come back to you. And uh, just to end off, there's lots of messages that have come through. Obviously, this is a really, really sensitive point because ultimately any interest rate move affects people either positively or negatively. And again, for those people and often senior people who rely on fixed income, to live off, every increase in the interest rate is a tremendous boost to them. Let's take a quick view from now until the end of the year. Where do you see interest rates going? That is quite difficult to make an explicit call just because, as we've discussed now, there are so many moving parts. But I suppose we could easily see the interest rate reaching something like 
5%, so say 5, maybe in a, in a, in a sort of a more bearish, bearish scenario, 5.5. Uh, so then we really are talking about your prime rate going uh, basically from 7, which was just before the November hike, to 8.5%. And then you would have to add on whatever uh, spread you're paying above prime for your car finance or your mortgage. And that would sort of be a baseline scenario where the U.S. is hiking, but things aren't falling entirely apart because things can go two ways. Global financial market volatility can pick up and the RAD can weaken dramatically, forcing the Reserve Bank to do more. Alternatively, if the Fed hikes aggressively and there's a major growth scare, equity markets could correct quite dramatically, and that may cause the Fed to backtrack a little bit in terms of the pace of its hiking, and then potentially the SAR would do the same because of heightened risk aversion and downside risk to growth. So, you know, it's not clear cut that it's just up and up and up, uh, because as, you know, the central bank tightens, there will be effects to take note of, and that could either accelerate or decelerate the pace at which they are hiking. Carmel, as always, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insights, and thank you for answering all the questions. Thanks, Alvin. Great. There was Carmen Nell, who's economist and macro strategist at Matrix Fund Managers. Thanks for for listening. Thanks, Craig, for pushing the buttons. We look forward to chatting you next week. Be well. Have a great week. Bye.